Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Health Rules Podcast. I am the host, Dave Donahue. I am a board-certified internal medicine physician, a fellow of the American College of Physicians, and a board-certified lifestyle medicine physician. So I am delighted to be here with you, but I can hear what you're saying or what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Dave, you doofus. You do realize there's about a billion things I could be doing with my time right now. There's about 10,000 different health-related podcasts out there. Why do we need yet another one? And my answer to that is, okay, yes, yes, good point. But um, one thing we're doing differently here is, is that this we're building checklists. Each episode, we are putting together a checklist of the most relevant or vital information that you need to know about to prevent or to reverse a important condition. So each episode, we will interview a expert in their field, someone who knows the science inside and out, and who also has clinical experience, and so who can help us really delve into the, this this world and help us build out that checklist. The checklists that we build are evidence-based, uh, derived from the best science available in the fields of traditional allopathic medicine, also in the field of uh, healthcare delivery science, which studies how effective is medicine. We also draw from my field of lifestyle medicine, which really focuses on how can we treat the underlying cause of disease and prevent disease from occurring in the first place. And we also uh, draw from what I call sustainability medicine, which holds that the, the health of the individual and the health of the environment and the health of the planet are all intertwined. So the fruits of each episode are stored on our website, healthrules.org. We will store the checklist. We will store a printable handout that you can print out and take with you to discuss with your doctor, your provider, your mail carrier, your clergy. I mean, whoever, whoever you want to talk, talk to about the thing, uh, you could put it up on, on your mirror in your bathroom to remind yourself that you are the most important person you want to talk to uh, about this information. So really, we're, our, our goal is to make this checklist be really the, the list of things that you want to be mindful of, and if you are, and if you, and if you, you know, don't miss these key steps, um, you really can achieve the best health uh, possible. So, this particular episode is super exciting. We are going to tackle the topic of kidney health. We are going to address how can you save yourself from the fate of chronic kidney disease. Our guest is. Dr. Shivam Joshi. He is an amazing guru of kidney health and the science around what are all the ways we can keep those kidneys healthy and prevent dialysis and prevent chronic kidney disease. Dr. Joshi is a board-certified nephrologist, that is to say a kidney doctor, and a clinical assistant professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. He works at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan with some other very noteworthy uh, lifestyle medicine gurus. He has authored multiple scientific works on the topics of plant-based diets and kidney health, including a recent paper in the American Journal of Kidney Disease called Plant-Based Diets for Kidney Disease, a Guide for Clinicians. So in this episode, it's really all about how can we preserve those kidneys of yours for the lifetime? How can we avoid the fate of dialysis, um, how can we, um, more importantly than dialysis, avoid the fate that most people with chronic kidney disease suffer, which is death from other causes, especially heart disease. Um, so we're going to go deep into the science around the kidneys, around what are all the things that science has identified as ways of preserving your kidneys. Um, spoil alert, spoiler alert, we are going to um, talk a bit about uh, plant-based diets. It turns out that plant-based diets are the new kid on the block for um, keeping your kidneys healthy. Uh, there's quite a bit of evidence to support that, and we're going to share that. And I also share it uh, in the references section uh, on the healthrules.org webpage devoted to this discussion. Um, and we are going to also delve pretty deep into 
Um, so some traditional stuff too, uh, which medicines are most effective, uh, which medicines to avoid. Um, so again, we want to pull out all the stops. We want to we want the, the tools in your toolbox to be as effective as they possibly can at being able to preserve your kidneys. So I have to tell you that that some of what we're going to discuss is a little bit controversial. Uh, we live in an era where, although there, in my opinion, is a pretty convincing body of science um, that that some of these dietary approaches and this whole food plant based diet really can make a difference in kidney health. Most doctors are not preaching that, that message. Most even kidney doctors, many uh, very well-renowned and very learned kidney doctors um, do not preach this message. And so again, it, it, there's some controversy. Um, I, I think it's a little bit analogous to the, to the time when uh, medical science had identified that smoking was definitely harmful for the lungs, but uh, most doctors still smoked. Um, so it, it just takes time for the medical field to come around. I could end up eating those words if, if emerging science goes on to not support the whole food plant-based diet. But right now, I do believe that there is a pretty convincing um, body of evidence. And I think that at a minimum, it's uh, pretty darn safe to be eating things like fruits and vegetables, especially as long as you monitor your kidney health and make sure that those those electro, those uh, measures of concern like potassium and phosphorus levels aren't getting unhealthy. So clearly this is an area where you don't want to take matters into your own health. You really do want to work with your doctor or your provider, um, but, but educate them and educate yourself and uh, be educated by them. Uh, let's all learn as much as we can about how to keep our kidneys healthy. I want to remind you that the fruits of this episode will be stored on our website healthrules.org. You can go to healthrules.org slash podcast and look for the checklist to prevent kidney disease and progression. And there you can find our finalized checklist. You'll find our a printable handout that you can take with you to your doctor or your doctor can print for you. And uh, if you want to give us feedback, you have some alternative ideas or we totally missed the boat or you have some personal experience in this matter, would love to hear from you. Please go to healthrules.org feedback and let us know your thoughts. So with that, let's get started. Dr. Shivam Joshi, welcome to the Health Rules Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I am delighted that we had this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, no problem. Happy to be here. It's always great to be uh, talking to like-minded folks. <clears throat> so, so please tell us about yourself. Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Shivam Joshi, and I'm a physician at uh, NYU in Bellevue. Uh, I spend most of my time at Bellevue Hospital. I wear multiple hats. I practice as an internist, as a nephrologist, and as a lifestyle medicine physician. And, uh, and I uh, also uh, advocate for plant-based diets uh, in, uh, in all three clinics that I work in. And uh, the, the reason for that is because I'm a big believer in the power of nutrition and lifestyle. And uh, I want to help my patients uh, not only treat the diseases that they have, but also prevent future diseases. Um, uh, I speak uh, frequently on the topic of plant-based diets and kidney disease, uh, which is why I'm here uh, yet again uh, to talk about my favorite topic. Uh, and uh, uh, I've written a number of papers on the subject. Uh, it's an active interest of mine. So how did you come to this place? How did you come to this level of knowledge and and and, and this area of scientific scholarship? Yeah, so I combined two things that I was interested in. I combined uh, my personal interest in plant-based diets. I had been an off and on uh, vegetarian for the bulk of my life. And then uh, uh, professionally, uh, I had known for many years that I wanted to be a nephrologist. And uh, when I came to fellowship, I was told uh, that I had to come with a, 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 a research project or a, um, a, a presentation at the end of fellowship, uh, kind of summing up uh, what I 
and research. And I decided to combine these two areas and uh, I kind of jumped into it, not knowing how much information there would be out there or if I'd be able to pull anything off. And uh, as I was making the PowerPoint over those two years uh, and doing my research, I kept finding more and more stuff and what, and what I thought would be a very short presentation uh, has now grown uh, several years later into a uh, hundred plus slides and now has been broken up into different PowerPoints because there's just so much information on this topic. And uh, there's every day, every week, there's more papers coming out in, in this very specific area of plant-based diets and kidney disease, which is amazing. It is amazing because in, in my experience um, of dealing with folks who have chronic kidney disease at various stages, um, I haven't encountered much of that knowledge around the use of a plant-based diet for kidney disease. And I think quite the contrary, many of my patients were sort of counseled in the opposite direction. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a familiar refrain that I hear uh, um, uh, from, from many people when I talk about this. And that's, that's no surprise because we as nephrology community have actively counseled our patients to not eat these foods because we think that uh, well, it's high in phosphorus or potassium and that bad things will happen. Uh, so this is really kind of uh, um, uh, turning everything on its head. It's, it's like uh, going back to square one and really thinking, are we, are we doing this right? <clears throat> So yeah, the, I think very soon we're going to jump in and, and start formulating perhaps you know, the authoritative checklist on what people should do to preserve their kidney function. But uh, before, we, before we get there, um, could you tell us if there's any um, kind of way that folks could follow you, either social media or uh, efforts you're, you're uh, working on that the public should be aware of? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, there's, there's two things that uh, people should know about is uh, I'm most active on Twitter and you can follow me at sjoshimd. Uh, so that's the letter S and uh, my last name, joshimd uh, uh, on Twitter. And that's where I post all the studies that I find, anything I'm working on, uh, interest. Uh, that's where I'm most active. And uh, for those who are interested in more resources on this uh, topic, I have a website that I try to uh, update and maintain periodically. Uh, I, I don't always uh, update it in real time, uh, but uh, you know, there's a little bit of a delay, but uh, uh, it's, it's at the moment, I think the best thing out there in terms of plant-based diets and kidney disease. Uh, so you can go to my website, afternoonrounds.com. Uh, it's a WordPress blog, but the last post is uh, a continuous update on this issue. Uh, and I have resources on papers. And if you're interested in finding a physician that practices this, uh, you can go there. Um, there's also information on dietitians if you're a patient. Uh, and then there's a few other things, videos and uh, blogs and other stuff uh, that's all linked there. Afternoonrounds.com. Exactly. Super. Thanks for sharing that. So let's, how about we jump in and start crafting this checklist? All right. Um, yeah, first we're gonna have to give it sort of a title. And, uh, and I guess we were, I was thinking about something along the lines of preventing kidney failure, um, but what, what do you suggest? Uh, yeah, we could say prevent, maybe preventing uh, kidney disease, mm -hmm. uh, preventing kidney disease and its progression. We can maybe say that. Right. All right. And how are we going to do that? So let, let, yeah. me, let me say one thing is I, I find myself in primary care in this position of, of, of talking with a patient about their kidney disease. And usually the conversation goes something like, well, you have stage three chronic kidney disease. And I, I, and I want to kind of move on to the next topic. But they were, wait, 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 Th stage three chronic kidney disease. What happened to stage one and two? And, and, and I sort of have to explain where that came from. And then, and then we got to explain, what are we going to do about it? So, yeah. so maybe, maybe you could explain like, what is kidney disease? Uh, why, why does everybody in the world have stage three chronic kidney disease uh, before we jump into how, how are we going to fix it? Yeah, so, so your kidneys are these organs in your body. You have to, and most people have two of them. 
uh, a handful of people uh, have a combined kidney or they have one kidney and that's uh, uh, congenital or something that's happened at birth. But for most of people have about two kidneys, uh, they're about the size of a fist or a Coke can and they sit in uh, kind of uh, your flank region uh, on both sides. And the purpose of the kidney is to filter out uh, all of the bad stuff. Uh, so every day you eat and drink things and then your body uses those things for its daily life support and metabolism. And in the process, the, the byproducts of that metabolism are excreted out in the urine. Uh, and then the, the urine is made by the kidney and the kidney keeps uh, all your electrolytes in balance, uh, it keeps your blood pressure uh, in a normal range for the most part. And uh, it does a number of other things. It converts inactive vitamin D to active vitamin D. It helps make blood. Uh, so it's a cool little organ. It does a lot. It's like when it's doing its job, people don't notice that it's there. And that's really uh, it's, it's, per, uh, um, its purpose is, is, to, is to do everything, to not be noticed uh, and uh, help you do uh, the things that you need to do in your life. Uh, the problem is, is when it, the kidneys start to deteriorate. So if you could think of a kidney, a kidney function as being on a scale from zero to hundred, so to speak, uh, you're generally born with hundred uh, percent kidney function. And as you get older, the kidney function declines. And if you've ever had blood work, you can kind of see what this percentage is uh, in a rough approximation uh, by looking at uh, uh, this thing called the eGFR, which is estimating uh, how much filtration is happening. Um, some people have numbers above 100, uh, and, that's, and that's because it's not an, an actual percentage. Uh, but in terms of explaining it to patients, I, I give it that number. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there's five stages of kidney disease. The first stage is the earliest stage, and then you can progress on to stage five. And stage five is the last stage of kidney disease. And you could enter stage five and not be on dialysis, but as you progress through the last stage of uh, kidney disease, uh, uh, you can end up on dialysis or need a transplant. Or some people um, uh, who have a number of other health problems uh, go on to um, hospice or palliative care. Uh, so stage five starts around uh, that EGFR of 15. You can think of it actually as around 15% kidney function. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, and the idea of what we're doing here today is to try to uh, prevent that uh, uh, kidney disease from happening in the first place. And if you have it, to try and uh, prevent uh, progression. Uh, the reason being is that uh, dialysis is no fun. Um, I've met many patients on dialysis over the years. And, uh, and no one uh, particularly enjoys being on dialysis or going on dialysis, um, but it is an important life-saving treatment for those who need it. And um, uh, uh, for those who are fortunate enough, uh, there are kidney transplants, but uh, kidney transplants are, um, uh, are, are not always available. Uh, they're in high demand. The demand often exceeds the supply uh, and uh, uh, it involves a, a sizable surgery too in taking of these medications. So um, as always with many things in the healthcare field, uh, preventing a problem is always better than uh, treating it later on. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I, I've read that of all those labs we get in our blood work at the doctor's office, the EGFR is perhaps the most uh, indicative of of how, how much longer we have on this planet. You know, so if you look at, you know, sodium, potassium, chloride, uh, even lipids, and perhaps even A1C, that those don't give you an, a, sort of a, an estimation of, you know, how, how much longer you have on this planet or how, how much longer are you going to be um, active and, and uh, healthy? Uh, but, but the EGFR kind of reflects this to some extent, does it? Do you agree? Yeah. Um... Uh, people, people with kidney disease are often afraid of progressing to dialysis, uh, but really the, the bigger fear for me is the progression to death because uh, so many people don't even make it to uh, dialysis or kidney failure. Um, uh, uh, they, they die along the way. Um, there's some estimates that, uh, that 
between 10 and 40 times as many people die uh, than make it onto dialysis. And there's uh, no one knows really, really for sure why. It could be the underlying causes of kidney disease contributing to the death. Uh, a lot of people that have kidney disease have diabetes or high blood pressure, and that takes its toll on other parts of the body. Uh, but it could also be from the kidney disease itself that uh, uh, the reduction in filtration of some of these toxins or um, uh, some of these other issues uh, like changes in the microbiome can contribute to uh, an increased risk of death. Um, uh, so it's just probably a combination of these things and then hopefully in the future um, uh, time will tell as to, to, uh, to why this is the case. Yeah, what's that statistic that um, you're far more likely to have a heart attack or die of cardiovascular disease than to die of, die of uh, you know, renal failure or to advance to dialysis for each yeah. person? Yeah, I have it, uh, have it uh, here, actually. Um, let me go ahead and pull it up. I have it in my slides. Uh, <clears throat> So there is a statistic. Uh, it's it's not uh, uh, references on it are, are difficult to find, but I was able to find one reference on it, and of course I had it here and I lost it. Um, <clears throat> so those with kidney disease are 16 to 40 times more likely to die than to progress to kidney failure, and uh, I found that on the NIH website. 16 to 40 times, got it. That's and uh, and uh, the risk, unfortunately, doesn't get any better uh, once you progress to dialysis or uh, kidney failure. Uh, the five-year survival rate uh, for those on dialysis is, has been abysmal for years, uh, and it's still uh, a paltry uh, 40, 20, uh, 42%. Wow, 42%. Yeah, got it. Okay, so jumping ahead, um, what what is our checklist? What are we going to do? We're sitting across the room from a patient with stage three, stage four, stage five, uh, chronic kidney disease. What what are the steps we should follow to preserve that kidney function, prevent that pre prevent that progression, and help keep this person alive? Yeah. So um, if you already have kidney disease, uh, I what you want to do, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a handful of things that you want to do and they should be pursued concurrently. So if, uh, if you have kidney disease, uh, you, you definitely don't want to develop uh, hypertension or diabetes because uh, uh, diabetes and hypertension are the number one and number two causes of kidney disease and kidney failure respectively. Um, so if you're in that situation where you have kidney disease for some reason, uh, you don't want to add on diabetes or hypertension because these things damage the blood vessels of the kidney and the kidney is a very vascular organ and uh, that will only add uh, fuel to the fire. If you are one of those people uh, who has kidney disease from diabetes or hypertension, uh, then uh, recommending that you don't get it doesn't really apply. So what we want to say then is to make sure that uh, it's not uncontrolled, that your diabetes and hypertension is not uncontrolled. Uh, so uh, we know that if you have more uncontrolled uh, high blood pressure or diabetes, uh, this does not uh, uh, work favorably for your kidneys. So, uh, so you want to take your medications, you want to uh, engage in lifestyle changes that help promote the control of these diseases and if not the reversal to the extent possible. Uh, we know from studies like uh, the DASH diet, uh, the, the, the DASH diet studies that people can achieve substantial reductions in blood pressure uh, within four weeks just by changing the foods that they eat. Uh, so by eating a DASH diet that's also low in sodium, you can reduce your blood pressure uh, by close to 21 or 22 points systolic uh, just within four weeks. So if you're someone, excuse me, that has high blood pressure and uh, uh, has kidney disease, uh, you definitely don't want to be eating 
in a way that uh, raises your blood pressure and requires you to be taking more medications. If anything, you want to be eating in a way that uh, reduces the number of medications um, and reduces your blood pressure. And uh, the same thing goes with diet uh, with diabetes. Uh, uh, certain foods can raise your blood sugar. Certain foods can worsen insulin resistance. Um, so, and the the foods that are healthy for high pressure are the same foods that are healthy for diabetes and high cholesterol and protecting your heart and also fortunately protecting your kidney. So those are your, uh, your, your plant-based foods. These are going to be your fruits, your vegetables, uh, your whole grains, uh, your lentils, legumes, nuts, seeds, all these sorts of things. <clears throat> and uh, by eating those, you also want to minimize the consumption of foods like processed foods, fried foods, added sugars, uh, meat, uh, uh, dairy, cheeses, things like that. Um, uh, and that combination of food uh, of, of foods will uh, help with these diseases. Uh, so to go back, if you have kidney disease, um, try and control try to prevent have, uh, developing diabetes hypertension. If you have diabetes and hypertension, try and get them under control. And then the next point is if you have the ability to get rid of these diseases, uh, then that's also something to work towards. So if you are someone uh, that's been, uh, that's gained um, uh, 10 or 20 pounds uh, as of recently, uh, and now you have diabetes and hypertension, and you also have kidney disease, it's not unreasonable or unrealistic to try to lose the weight through diet and exercise. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone will be able to lose all the weight and achieve uh, the perfect uh, um, body that they, uh, that, that they may desire, but everyone is capable of losing some weight uh, through diet and exercise and the extent of that weight loss uh, is unknown uh, but you won't know how much weight you can lose until you really um, uh, sort of put your pedal to the metal, so to speak, and try to try these uh, lifestyle changes out for yourself. And some people do very well. I've had uh, interactions with patients and uh, uh, it, you know, they come to see me and I tell them that they have all these health problems and I tell them that they, they need to do these things. And the next visit, uh, they've uh, three months, they've lost uh, 10 or 20 pounds and it's just amazing. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, uh, so if you have that ability to, to lose the weight, um, and make these lifestyle changes, uh, you could potentially reverse these diseases, uh, like high blood pressure and type two diabetes. Um, and then by eliminating those diseases, you kind of eliminate the risk that your kidney disease, uh, will progress, uh, from these diseases, which makes sense. And we've seen from some interesting studies that people who have a reversal of their blood sugar, um, there was an interesting study uh, that came out uh, uh, almost a, a decade and a half ago, showing that people who attain normal blood sugars through pancreas transplants were able to uh, reverse their kidney disease uh, after maintaining uh, normal blood sugar levels uh, after uh, five or 10 years. So it's important to, to control that blood sugar and get rid of diabetes if you have that ability. Mm -hmm. If you're not able to get rid of diabetes um, or your high blood pressure, it's important to stay compliant with your medications. It's important to get your blood sugar in that normal, blood pressure and blood sugar in that normal range uh, and to uh, uh, take medications like uh, uh, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin uh, receptor blockers uh, uh, to prevent uh, the progression of kidney disease. And now we have these new medications called SGLT2 inhibitors uh, for diabetes, uh, for patients with uh, kidney disease-related diabetes and perhaps even kidney disease not related to diabetes uh, that can also help. Uh, so seeing a nephrologist uh, like myself uh, may also be uh, helpful. <clears throat> gotcha. So are, are you prescribing the SGLT2 inhibitors um, sort of uh, more broadly as, as sort of a, a, 
a kidney drug or is, or is it still exclusively uh, reserved for people with type 2 diabetes? I've still, I've still been just reserving it for uh, those with type 2 diabetes. Um, even with those who have type 2 diabetes and kidney disease, it's, it's a, it has been difficult to get it for patients. Um, and uh, I get a little weary of, uh, of prescribing it for those without diabetes in regards to the, the hypoglycemia standpoint. And I think as more literature out, uh, we'll see that perhaps it is safe and maybe insurance companies will pay for it and make it more widely available. Uh, but for the time being, I've kind of just been reserving it for those with uh, diabetic kidney disease. Okay. SGLT2, I'll put links to and give some examples. Okay. Um, so here's a question. I've seen some literature that um, talk about blood pressure drugs. But switching blood the timing of a blood pressure drug to bedtime uh, in, in a randomized perspective trial uh, they found that this, actually it was a prospective trial, I'm not sure it was randomized. Uh, they, it reduced the rate of onset of chronic kidney disease by a dramatic am amount, like 75%. Have you, have you seen any of the literature about the timing of blood pressure drugs? Yeah, I know which study you're talking about. Um, uh, and at the time that it came out, I was also impressed and I was considering moving all the, my dosing to nighttime. Uh, but uh, what's interesting on the Twitter space, uh, it allows you to uh, get connected with um, uh, people all over the world who otherwise you may not have uh, met or heard from. And uh, there was questions in regards to the integrity of that data and whether or not those results uh, uh, could be repl replicated. Uh, it almost seemed too good to be true. So people, so that's why that hasn't been broadly adopted. That's interesting. I, I think I've seen multiple studies, um, not, not necessarily the kidney one. I think I only saw that in one case, but I've seen some other studies. Um, maybe they're just different rehashes of the same. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the same group. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then that explains uh, why we see such unbelievably dramatic effects by taking it at bedtime. But if there's some evidence that taking it at bedtime might be really helpful, um, all things being equal, you might as well take it something at bedtime, some of those blood pressure drugs at bedtime. Would you, would, what would you think about that? Yeah, so there, there is some literature. So apart from the dramatic uh, uh, differences, there is some benefits. Uh, we think it having a nocturnal dipping in the observational literature. So your blood pressure normally decreases at nighttime. Um, and uh, people, uh, there's this thing that you can wear as a 24 hour blood pressure monitor. And uh, if you look at it in a population, you'll see that blood pressures are higher during the day when people are out doing stuff. And then at nighttime, it kind of goes down as they become more relaxed and go to sleep. Um, and then people who lose this kind of decrease in blood pressure at nighttime tend to have an increased risk of having uh, bad things happen to them. Uh, uh, so in people, uh, we see this, we sometimes prescribe blood pressure medications at night to kind of recreate this uh, physiologic effect that happens. We don't know if our interventions will improve long-term outcomes, um, but uh, we do do that. So if, if you do have a high blood pressure at night, um, uh, it's not unreasonable to take a blood pressure at, bed at bedtime, especially if you're waking up with blood pressures that are elevated uh, in the mornings, uh, it may not be unreasonable to uh, kind of divide up your medications. Okay. So what about um, when somebody has chronic kidney disease? Obviously, we should identify the cause of it. Would, would you put that on the list of things? Make sure we've identified the cause? Or? Yeah, so, so not everyone with kidney disease uh, has kidney disease from high blood pressure diabetes. So um, if, if you have the ability and your kidney doctor feels that it's, it's necessary, uh, some people may benefit from having a kidney biopsy. There are other causes to kidney disease, including autoimmune diseases um, like lupus, 
Uh, you can, people can also develop allergic reactions in the kidney uh, uh, for medications, for example. Uh, and now we're also seeing as a recently COVID in the kidney. Um, so, uh, so there are, uh, there's a long list of other possibilities uh, that can affect the kidney. Obviously you don't want to miss some kind of glomerulonephritis or such. Right. Um, you know, but, mo but most kidney disease is due to some combination of hypertension or diabetes is, is that, that's basically right. three quarters right. of it, three quarters of chronic kidney diseases. Right, exactly. Okay. I think it may, yeah, three quarters. Okay. So we got to identify the cause. Uh, we want to think about those lifestyle factors that are causing, is there specific evidence that exercise is, is specifically beneficial for chronic kidney disease or, or do we just infer that it's beneficial because it's good for blood pressure and diabetes? Uh, I, I would have to go back. I think we infer it. There may be some small literature uh, uh, suggesting some direct benefit, uh, but uh, uh, I have not done a deep dive into specifically exercise. A lot okay. of my research has been with diet, but uh, exercise uh, has all these added benefits, um, helping with blood pressure, uh, stress, insulin resistance, cholesterol. Now, is, is hypercholesterolemia thought to be related to uh, chronic kidney disease? Uh, there, there are, it, it is thought that it can contribute to atherosclerosis and reduce blood flow to the kidney. Um, it, it certainly doesn't help, uh, but uh, it, it, hypercholesterolemia isn't a, a direct cause of kidney disease. Um, uh, for the most part, it's not like the number one or number two cause. Okay. Uh, but um, uh, for people with kidney disease, cholesterol-lowering medications like statins have been shown to reduce uh, major adverse uh, cardiac events. Okay. So that, that almost merits a separate check item because, um, you know, since, since cardiovascular disease is overwhelmingly the cause of death among people with chronic kidney disease, um, some special attention um, to, to, that, to your risk factors is warranted. Would you agree? Exactly. Okay. And, and that would include probably take a statin and more, perhaps more importantly, eat a, uh, a diet low in saturated fat uh, and low in excess calories and that can very much improve your vascular status and your cholesterol level and your inf infl inflammation throughout the body. Exactly. Foods okay. uh, that are high in plants and high in fiber, uh, high in healthy fats and low in your unhealthy fats. We used to say low fat diet, um, but now, but now it's uh, in the same way as Carbs can, there's good and bad carbs. There's also good and bad fats. So now we say to eat the healthy fats, which are going to be your hufas and mufas, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fats, and then uh, avoid your saturated and your trans fats. Okay. Are there specific foods that you think are helpful for kidney disease? Uh, specific foods? They're, uh, you know, um, it's not like urinary tract infections where they say to drink, uh, or drink or eat cranberries, uh, specific for kidney disease. There isn't one specific food that uh, has been shown to have magical properties. But what I will say is that, uh, for people who have, um, so this, so this may get into, uh, for people who have kidney disease already, how else can you prevent progress? progression of your kidney disease. Um, uh, eating fruits and vegetables has been shown to be beneficial in the context of metabolic acidosis. So <clears throat> in uh, the uh, literature, uh, it has been shown in several studies that uh, metabolic acidosis, uh, which is this complication of kidney disease, 
uh, uh, can promote the progression of kidney disease. And if you treat the metabolic acidosis, you can actually slow down how fast your kidney disease progresses. Uh, and this has been shown in observational and interventional studies. So what is metabolic acidosis? So if you've ever heard of alkaline water, uh, think of it as your blood becoming uh, acidic. So the opposite of al alkali is acid. And instead of the water, it's we're talking about your blood. So that's essentially what metabolic acidosis is in your kidneys work to keep the pH, and that's, that's what we're talking about here, in the normal range. So if it's too high, it becomes alkaline. If it's too low, it becomes acidic. The kidneys in their normal healthy state work to keep the pH within a normal range. So uh, if your pH is, goes on the low side, and low is uh, within the blood, uh, you know, we're talking uh, changes at the 10th the decimal point, uh, you know, 7.3, 7.2. Uh, these are small changes, but that's what we consider metabolic acidosis. Um, that can promote the progression of kidney disease, and there's some nice uh, papers and research done by uh, Dr. Don Wesson uh, on this issue. And, uh, and uh, what they've shown in interventional trials uh, is that uh, uh, fruits and vegetables are just as good as uh, nephrologists giving the uh, sodium bicarbonate or some sort of prescription uh, alkaline product, which is the standard of care. So if, if you have kidney disease and significant enough that you have metabolic acidosis, your doctor probably has prescribed you uh, sodium bicarbonate or uh, uh, sodium citrate or bicitra, one of these products to kind of neutralize the acid in your blood. Essentially, uh, it, it's uh, like the alkaline water that you might buy over uh, at your grocery store. Uh, but it's a little bit more potent and uh, it's a little more concentrated. And uh, what we've seen is that just eating fruits and vegetables does the same job in bringing that pH up and neutralizing the acid. The reason being is that in fruits and vegetables, there are natural uh, alkali like citrate and malate and bicarbonate that are found in these foods uh, that can neutralize the acid. Um, and all it takes is two to four cups per day for most people. So uh, that's another thing people can do uh, to prevent progression or kidney disease. And even uh, in, uh, amongst my uh, uh, house staff and the interns and residents and fellows that I, that I see in my teaching, it's one of the things that we kind of overlook. It's just another uh, number on, a, on the BMP that looks abnormal and we kind of just gloss past it and kind of focus on the bigger things like that. What number, you mean the bicarbonate? Yeah, the bicarbonate. So what, what's a target for a, a bicarbonate that's healthy for the kidneys? Yeah, so we aim for 22 to 24 uh, to try and keep it there. But sometimes you may see people, you know, with 16s or 18s or 20s and uh, a little bit of bicarbonate uh, may help based on what we know from the literature. Um, and so 22 to 24, you don't want it higher than 24. Right. And, and so to be clear, if the bicarbonate level is lower, that means you have a lot of acid in the blood and that means you're doing more damage day, day in and day out to the kidneys. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Now, can we also follow it with urine pH? Uh, you, you, that's a good question. Uh, I think you could. I've been using more of the serum uh, bicarbonate uh, uh, to follow, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess you could. Got it. So this is helpful. What other tests are useful? What about blood urea and nitrogen? I always thought that was a reflection on how much strain we're putting on the kidneys. Uh, yeah. So BUN is a uh, byproduct of uh, protein metabolism and nitrogen metabolism. Uh, and uh, some people, so this, this kind of ties into uh, with the metabolic acidosis. And then following this, we'll talk about uh, phosphate levels. Um, but for those who have kidney disease already, uh, it's been shown in a number of trials to that limiting the amount of protein you eat can affect the progression of your kidney disease. And uh, basically what happens with eating too much protein 
if you have kidney disease is that your kidneys can sort of uh, go into hyperdrive um, and to try and keep up with all the metabolic needs of the body. So if you eat a lot of protein, your body has to digest that protein. And then there's a lot of byproducts. And those byproducts are things like uh, nitrogen and blood urea nitrogen, which is measured. And uh, those things need to be excreted out in the urine or they'll accumulate and then they, those things can cause problems. So what uh, the body will do to kind of get rid of it is that after a high protein meal is that the body will, uh, the kidneys will go into overdrive uh, to kind of get rid of this. For those who have kidney disease, going to overdrive is problematic because it's like having a car that isn't working so well and you keep taking it onto the racetrack and just putting it uh, a literally pedal to the metal uh, and exerting it. So if you keep doing that, you know, that's not, that's not going to be, that's not ideal for a car that's already ailing. And similarly for a kidney that's already ailing, putting into this uh, uh, overdrive type state, that's the state's actually called hyperfiltration. Uh, has been shown to uh, lead to a faster decline in kidney function compared to those who eat a lower protein diet. So it's, it's not to avoid protein altogether because you still need protein uh, for basic metabolism and for your muscles and for your body, but to avoid overdoing it. Uh, so uh, to not uh, uh, be getting all of your calories from protein sources. Uh, so the the amount is generally between 0.6 to 0.8 uh, grams per kilogram per day of ideal body weight, certainly no more than 1.0 for most people. Uh, and, uh, and definitely to avoid your so-called high protein diets, which are uh, above uh, 1.2 or 1.5 grams of protein per day. So, uh, so that that has been shown in a, actually in a meta-analysis to have a small benefit in uh, uh, preventing the progression of kidney disease uh, every year. Uh, the reason that this isn't widely adopted or widely uh, uh, dispersed uh, today is because it's kind of been overshadowed by the arrival of these medications, uh, ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers uh, uh, a decade or two ago. So around the time that this idea was becoming popular, uh, it came to an abrupt halt with the arrival of these medications that basically did the same thing uh, uh, and, and perhaps better. Um, but uh, it's still unclear whether the benefit would be additive uh, if, if you combine both of these approaches if you're, if you're in that position. Um, both of these approaches, you mean a low protein diet plus ACE inhibitors? Right, exactly. Okay. So, uh, but it's not it's not unreasonable to adopt uh, uh, this diet if uh, if you're on a medication and uh, there's good evidence uh, to 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 adopt a low protein diet uh, even if you're not on the medication. Okay. Now, of course, another lab we have to follow is potassium, right? So uh, everybody's afraid of getting too much potassium when you're eating all those fruits and vegetables. Yeah, so potassium is a big issue. Um, uh, uh, I'm actually working on a PowerPoint on potassium right now on uh, plant-based diets. Um, historically, we've told patients to not eat high potassium containing foods, uh, uh, like fruits and vegetables. But what we've seen in the literature is that people who actually do eat these foods uh, don't necessarily develop high potassium levels. And we think that's because uh, of the, the relationship that the potassium in those foods has with the other component within those foods. So for example, a potassium in banana is also packaged with fiber. It's also packaged with natural alkali. And both of these things may kind of mitigate any rise in blood potassium levels. The fiber increases bowel movements and uh, the more uh, bowel movements people have, uh, the larger the volume, the, the more potassium people lose in bowel movements, which kind of balances out any rise in potassium. And then alkali kind of prevents the potassium levels in the blood from going up because it sequesters potassium uh, within the cell. Uh, and then there's also recent literature coming out suggesting that the way 
potassium is packaged within plant foods because it's in a cell wall, it makes it harder for the body to digest and actually absorb, which is also interesting. So some people theorize that no more than half or two thirds of potassium in plant foods is actually being absorbed, which is uh, interesting. Um, another micronutrient I wanna talk about is phosphate levels uh, because it's kind of a similar issue. Uh, and that we used to think that plant foods were very high in phosphate, like beans and lentils and nuts. And we told our patients not to eat these foods because of how high uh, phosphate levels were in these foods. But what we've come to learn is that the bulk of the phosphate in these foods is actually bound to a anti-nutrient named phytate. And that prevents the phosphate in these foods from actually being absorbed uh, when they're eaten. Um, uh, uh, for the most part. Uh, in certain instances, uh, if foods have been heavily processed or uh, cooked under extreme temperatures or, uh, or circumstances, that phytate molecule can become disrupted and, uh, and, be, uh, and cause the uh, phosphate to be released. And then people can get, uh, can absorb the phosphate and then develop high phosphate levels. But uh, your average home cooking of fruits and vegetables and beans and lentils, things like that, will likely not do that. And people can eat these foods without incurring an increase in uh, phosphate levels for the most part. Um, the reason I mention all this is because in some studies, they've shown that high phosphate levels has been associated with the progression of kidney disease. Uh, so um, it's another... Uh, point to think about in terms of progression of preventing the progression of kidney disease along with metabolic acidosis, um, maybe phosphate levels too. And, and uh, plant-based diets are pretty much phosphate neutral, you think? Phosphate neutral or low in phosphate. Um, so the foods that are going to be high in phosphate, so if you think about it, are you going to be your processed foods, uh, your dark sodas, Problem is, is that although phosphorus is listed as an ingredient, it's not uh, listed on the nutrition label in terms of its quantity. Uh, so it's hard for patients to, and even physicians to understand just exactly how much phosphate is in these foods. Uh, but uh, in general, um, you're gonna get more bioavailable phosphate in your processed foods because they're adding um, phosphate directly into the foods and that's almost 100% bioavailable. And then your animal-based foods like meat and dairy are two-thirds bioavailable. Uh, I have two-thirds bioavailable phosphate. So of all the phosphate in those foods, about 66% uh, of it is getting absorbed and plants are anywhere between 10 to 40%. So that's why uh, plants are, are more favorable in this regard. Okay. So it looks like our checklist has taken a little bit of a direction in sort of the underlying cause. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit this after we conclude, but uh, I think it's I think it's useful to know because um, when people think about eating a plant-based diet for chronic kidney disease, they're going to get a lot of people arguing with them. So yeah. it's good to know that um, that it's it's actually not harmful to eat a plant-based diet. In fact, it is one of the best solutions we have to preventing the progression of kidney disease. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, it, it's, uh, and there's even some stories of people being able to reverse their kidney disease. Uh, and that, 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 that's not the, the majority, it's definitely the minority of cases, but, uh, but it's, it's definitely encouraging to see those kind of results. It seems like kidney disease might be sort of reversible in the same way that dementia is reversible, that if it's early, if, uh, if, or to a small extent, you can sort of improve it. Um, but you can certainly halt the progression of it with a switch to a healthier lifestyle overall. Yeah, so. right, yeah. And we, we don't, the other exciting part about this is that we don't know the limits of what the body can do if given the circumstances. So that's kind of exciting to, to be at this point in science where we're, we're now looking into this. There's, there's other elements of the standard American diet that it seems like there's so many elements of the standard American diet that are un, unfriendly to the kidneys. One of them would be TMAO. 
And we've seen some rather dramatic research around TMAO and its uh, effects on progressing uh, both congestive heart failure and chronic kidney disease. Um, any, any tips regarding TMAO? Does that belong on our checklist in any way? Yeah, so TMAO you find in, uh, in your uh, red meat and some seafood uh, and that the TMAO levels, uh, TMAO is this compound that uh, has been associated with uh, 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 adverse cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes and death. And as kidney function declines, this compound increases and uh, it's thought to actually further contribute to uh, worsening kidney function. Um, and this all ties into the microbiome and what's how the, how the microbiome works uh, with diet um, and, uh, and how that affects ultimately your health. Uh, so this is an active area of research. Um, and needless to say, uh, the foods that, uh, uh, that, con that contribute to TMAO uh, aren't, aren't, haven't been uh, foods that were healthy to begin with for your kidneys. These are foods that are, tend to be high in acid. They raise blood pressure. They tend to have a higher bioavailability of phosphorus. So um, it's just another strike against them for uh, people with kidney disease. Uh, and like you mentioned, eggs, uh, red meat, uh, certain seafoods um, that, uh, that uh, contribute to the production of TMAO in our microbiome. And the, the microbiome, is that something that um, there, there's a direct link or is it just sort of more of an association between a health, quote unquote, healthier microbiome and, uh, and healthy kidneys? Yeah, uh, that's an area of active research. It's more associative at this point. We haven't, uh, um, we, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have uh, uh, something to hang our hat on at the moment. Uh, it's actually something that I'm actively researching in right now, uh, or trying to. Uh, so, maybe, but maybe in the coming years we'll have some more information. How about hydration? Uh, is that is there any evidence that staying adequately hydrated, drinking a lot? A lot of people I find um, really are dehydrated much of the day and drinking very little water. Um, and and when people do that, their blood urea nitrogen levels uh, can go up. Um, so I'm wondering if there's any evidence that staying hydrated preserves the kidneys. Yeah, so hydration is important, especially if you're someone that is on uh, a number of medications, you definitely don't wanna be uh, dehydrated. Um, and then especially if you have kidney stones, I tell my patients with kidney stones to try and keep their urine clear to light yellow. Uh, so if you're someone that has consistently very dark orange or red urine, uh, it might be, and, uh, it might be helpful to drink a little bit more water. But uh, those with kidney disease uh, can get in trouble by drinking too much water because then you might exceed the ability of the kidney uh, to get rid of that water. And then that can contribute to swelling, edema, high blood pressure. So it's definitely a fine balance and it depends on the individual situation and uh, the stage in ki of kidney function and the other health problems that you may have. Okay, so a good amount of water as a rule of thumb, what about two liters a day? Uh, or I yeah, guess that would be too Yeah, much. there's no great evidence on uh, how much it is. And that's because it varies uh, individual needs. Uh, if you're up here in the North and it's, you know, the air is dry, you may find yourself being thirsty. If you're in a, uh, hot, humid climate, uh, you might find yourself uh, uh, sweating, so you might need a little bit more. Um, it depends on the size of the person, things like that, how much you exercise, how much water you're getting from your foods. People who eat more plant foods tend to have more water in those foods. But something to avoid um, is uh, the drug class of NSAIDs, if you, especially if you have kidney disease. Oh, uh, yes. Because... Uh, uh, NSAIDs affect blood flow to the kidney and then can contribute uh, to uh, kidney injury, especially if taken at high doses, especially if combined with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. Uh, uh, so those medications, uh, if you're taking them, consider maybe switching to Tylenol or uh, uh, drink, taking them with a glass of water or taking the, the lowest dose that you possibly can. 
uh, to avoid injury uh, to your kidneys. That's that's a vital one. Um, there's some other medicines that linked with kidney failure. How about the proton pump inhibitors? Yeah, so that kind of touches back on uh, some people having allergies to uh, kidney medic uh, to having a kind of a, a, an allergic reaction in their kidneys to medications. And there's a there's a list of medications. Uh, some NSAIDs fall into that class. Proton pump inhibitors fall in there. Uh, antibiotics fall in there. Um, Almost any medication can give you an allergic reaction and that can affect the kidney. Uh, so this is kind of uh, uh, why it's important to see a kidney doctor if you have uh, kidney dysfunction uh, and then to even consider doing a kidney biopsy because it's really only a way to find out if you have an allergic reaction to a uh, medication uh, it, within the kidney is to do a kidney biopsy. So you raise a good point that you should see a kidney doctor. Um, what, what would be the trigger that you would recommend to, to warrant sending somebody to you? Yeah, some people have hard and fast rules to, to send um, based on the stage of kidney function, but I, it, it depends on the patient, it depends on the physician and the situation. Um, I have people with stage one or two kidney function, and we spend a lot of our time just talking about the things that we talked about today. And I think I would like to think that our interactions are worthwhile and that me talking to my early stage kidney patients uh, uh, prevents their progression, prevents them from being on dialysis, and they may not have gotten that information earlier on. Uh, and then, you know, uh, obviously if you have significant kidney dysfunction, uh, stage, you know, uh, five, stage four, and even stage to extent stage three, uh, not unreasonable to see kidney, uh, a physician, uh, a kidney doctor. Um, the, especially you should, people should see a kidney doctor, especially if the, the trajectory of the kidney dysfunction is, is significant. So if, you're, if you have stage three kidney disease and you're stable and your primary care doctor is doing a great job, uh, you may not need to necessarily see a kidney doctor. But if you went from stage nothing to stage three within six months, then you know something may be going on and that may be worth seeing a kidney doctor. Well, I would say people with stage zero kidney disease should see Dr. Shivam Joshi because this guy, this guy has a couple of tricks up his sleeve that most doctors don't have, um, and he's got a few slide decks that uh, that speak to a very thorough understanding of the literature around how to keep these kidneys healthy, but also how to keep you alive for as long as possible. That's so. very nice of you to say. Yeah, I'd, uh, I, I, I try to keep a couple of tricks up there, um, but uh, uh, hopefully I'll have a few more uh, as time goes on. I like to think of us doctors as general contractors with a toolbox and, and it's a question of what tools are in our toolbox. And I think if you're just going by what you were trained in, in medical school, your tools in the toolbox often are mostly just medications um, depending on the subspecialty, but, but um, it is nice. That's one of the nice things about lifestyle medicine is you fill up your toolbox with a whole lot of other um, very handy tools. Yeah, exactly. Uh, medicine is a career of lifelong learning. So you, you keep, you're constantly adding uh, tools to the toolbox. Well, that's that, that as well, that, that curiosity um, that lifelong curiosity. What we don't want to do is, is kind of uh, close the door on our education after we finish uh, medical school, or we will, you know, propagate the, those the old style of thinking for uh, the whole rest of our career. Right, and that's why we have uh, blogs uh, or websites like yours, healthrules.org, to keep people <laughs> educated and informed. So, um, just to finish up. Is there anything else you can think of, Dr. Joshi, that would help uh, somebody with chronic kidney disease to preserve that kidney function? Something that we that sometimes gets missed. So the NSAID, oops, we forgot to stop the NSAID. That daily aspirin or the proton pump inhibitor, perhaps. Any other strategies or ideas? Uh, you know, in the time of COVID, I would say just to stay connected with your doctor, to not... Uh 
to get you know follow up with getting your labs done uh, make your appointments don't be a no-show um, be compliant with the medications if you run out and get your refills uh, especially in the time of COVID, it's becoming a, a little bit harder for physicians and patients to stay connected but uh, whatever patients can do to stay on top of uh, their health, that certainly will facilitate uh, 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 their, the care of their health. Mm -hmm. It's an important point. And I think when you look at the percentage of people who actually take the medicines that have been prescribed for them, it's, it tends to be very low. So, um, so this is a case uh, of chronic kidney disease and, and a number of other conditions in medicine where you really do want to be uh, faithful with your medicines and stay close with your doctor and right. uh, you're right about COVID. That's, uh, that's, you know, that's the, the issue of the day. We're, as we record this, we're, we're going through an explosion in the number of cases and the severity of the cases. So it is, it is a little bit of a scary time. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Dr. Joshi, I am going to conclude there and let you get back to your life. So I, I want to extend uh, my words of gratitude to you for taking your time on a Saturday morning to talk about this stuff and for all the work you're doing, communicating this. I've been watching your videos online and following you on Twitter, which that handle one more time is? S. Joshi MD. S. Joshi MD uh, and Twitter. And it's, it's good stuff. It's, it's really powerful. And I'm just excited that you are helping to create more voices like your own in not only the kidney community, but more broadly in lifestyle medicine, internal medicine, and beyond. So many, many thanks for the, the great work you are doing. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, uh, it's, it's work like yours that keep the, the message going because after my talk ends or after uh, people get done reading my paper, it's, uh, you know, on to the next thing. So uh, the work of you the work that well, you do and other people do kind of keep the message going out Many there. thanks. We're going to try to package this into something that's going to be uh, use, usable on, on an ongoing basis. It has some persistent value. It's something that people can refer to over and over to, uh, to try to keep those kidneys healthy because kidney health, like, like brain health and heart health, it's not something you, you check a box and you're, and you're done. You have, you have to live, live, live the life every single day. So many thanks for helping me craft that checklist today. No problem, anytime. I will wish you all the best, Dr. Joshi, until the next time we cross paths. Sounds good. Thank you, Dr. Donahue. <laughs> Take care and bye now. Bye-bye.